take me somewhere around four hours. Used to be that people would die halfway there, right? In the wagons trying to get through the snow. We could fly from continent to continent. We have uh, two sets of, of missionaries in the room who will be in different continents and flying to and from all of those places. Everything is great. The world is wonderful. We have so much reach and so much ability to talk to others. And so we should go with a kind of a joy about our lives. Now, it doesn't mean we're plastic, right? It doesn't mean when things are rough and things do get rough, right? People that we love, they, they die and their bodies fail them and we don't have them in our presence anymore. But we have a, a certain impermeable joy about us as Christians because we know that this life isn't it. This life is temporary. Scripture says it's but a vapor, right? And if you're a Harrisburgian, you go downtown Harrisburg in the wintertime and you see the manhole covers, right? All the extra steam coming off those systems. That's what I think about every time I read that life is but a vapor. When you watch a car go over one of those, it kind of follows the car for a minute and then it's just gone. And that's our lives, except that God made us with an eternal purpose. And so as Christians, we go about our lives joy-filled. We appreciate all of the wonderful things, right? We talked last week kind of a lot about food. Food is such a great gift from God. It's fantastic. I love food, probably more than I should. I dwell on food a lot. I talk about food. In my house, if you come over around dinner time, much to my family's displeasure, I play uh, an Italian, um, it's called Italian cooking music on Spotify. I play that list and, and sing like an idiot. It's fun. Life is good. But recently... Uh, a couple of Saturdays ago, I was talking to some men here in the church about microwave culture. Uh, microwaves came out several years back, maybe a couple of decades. Everyone was really exciting, right, because it made life easier. Um, if you want to make chicken drumsticks, you can defrost them in the microwave. Uh, if you want to make scrambled eggs, you can do that in the microwave. Please don't. I remember the first time we got one in my house, our family lived in Tampa, and I remember carrying it into the house, uh, which was difficult. It took a team of, of 70 ox to carry this machine in, and it had a manual dial, right? And the thing would ding when it was done with like a, a mechanical bell in there somewhere. Now we do everything in the microwave, right? I, basically, everyone operates the same way with the microwave. What should take a minute is way too long. So you set it for 45 seconds, and then you stop it three seconds before it's going to go off because you can't wait that long for your pizza to be rewarmed or your coffee to be made hot again. And so you stop it with those three seconds left on there. And 42 seconds feels like too long to a microwave culture. You, know, you used to have to percolate coffee, right? You need to gather wood and sticks and hope that it wasn't wet, you know, and you pile them up and you light a fire, you know. <laughs> when we went to play golf, he told me, I'm allowed to hit from the white tees now. How old do you have to be to hit from the white tees? How old do you have to be to hit from the white tees? Is it 80? I think it's 80 for the white tees. Um, but he, he transitioned to hitting from the white tees four or five years after you were allowed to. So now we look at growing, right? If that's the output, if, if, if joy in the Christian life, the joy-filled Christian life is the output of all these things, now let's look at growing. How do you get there? How do you get to a point of being in joy in your Christian life? Um, and Scripture talks about that. It doesn't leave us confused here. 
Um, so I said we'll be in, in Ephesians 4. Um, before we get there, I, w- I want to just say, though, that our growth happens over time. Um, because we have a little bit of the microwave culture in us, much like the shingles virus, but there's a, there's a shot for that. Say what? John Newton wrote once, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's a great quote. So do you know who John Newton was and what John Newton had done. Um, He joined into kind of a shipping and, and I guess, fishing industry, met a woman that he loved and cared about, and he was kidnapped by slave stealers. And then he was almost, in a sense, enslaved by these people, and he was on these slave ships where they would go and they would take slaves, and they were horrific towards them. At some point during this, he became a believer and continued in this trade, And then later became convicted, spoke against the trade, maybe inspired others who also spoke against the trade. Now go back to that quote. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. If you were to visit his grave, it would say, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. What a graceful God. I mean, he was frankly an awful man, but became gripped by Christ and with wild degrees of growth in Jesus Christ and knowledge, became a believer. We looked last week at the Lord's model prayer for believers, and we were caught by something, and I want to call it to your attention If you would look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, this is Jesus answering the question, uh, how should we pray? He said, and forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And it's a reminder that at the same time we're in both camps, debtors and forgivers were to mirror the way that our Father God in heaven forgives us in Christ. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Um, It's like if you go into any establishment in the state of Florida, it says no shirt, no shoes, no service. Or you'll see signs that say thank you for not smoking. I always thought that those were funny because they're very presumptive, right? 
who says that the person's not smoking when they read that sign. This portion of the Lord's Prayer is also very presumptive. Forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. The Christian life is freeing, but sometimes heavy. Because we want to carry that debt that others owe to us. We want to be frustrated with the people who have wronged us. We want that to be made right. I never have understood the concept of people desiring a, a, an apology from someone else. Maybe that's partly because I'm somewhat introverted and I just would rather not just move on. Um, but the concept of someone having to come to me and, and garner my forgiveness is just, it's just so strange to me. But we, as part of the believer's life, are supposed to be doling that out all over the place, forgiving our debtors, people that owe us, people that have actually wronged us. Jesus gave so many examples of this kind of thing. How many times? Over and over and over again. It's a reminder to us that we'll have both debts and debtors. And when we remember that this world is broken and that sin runs through it freely like a river, we'll live here a bit differently. I feel like sometimes we're so surprised when sin rears its head in this world in some awful way. You know, we can, especially as, as American Christians, westernized Christians, we begin to trust all of the structures and the things that are around us that make us very comfortable, frankly. Things aren't very difficult. And so as Christians, we start to live here differently, maybe less impacted by the kind of pride-backed, sinful reactions in the world, because our hope isn't in this place. Our hope isn't in this life. In fact, all of our attention should really transcend over this life and be looking towards the future kingdom, which isn't to wash our hands of the present. The present is important. God didn't save us and then suck us out of this place with Nicolas Cage leaving our clothes folded neatly behind. He left us here to do something. And this is why we go then into the world around us as joy-filled people, so that the watching world sees a little bit of a reflection of the love of God in us, in a broken world. So then how do we go from the point of salvation to growing in Christ and becoming people who are full of that impermeable joy? full of the testimony that Paul would have to the world around him, that he had learned to rejoice in much and little. Perhaps it's easy to rejoice in much. Perhaps you just think you're rejoicing in much. Maybe in much, you're rejoicing in the much, not in the God that gave it to you. So maybe we're actually distracted sometimes in much. Oftentimes, Scripture talks to us in terms that are agrarian um, and have a definition. If your eyes are like mine, you can't possibly read it. Uh, but this is a people who, who grow things and tend to fields. And so sometimes we miss some illustrations that come across to an agrarian kind of a people. When it talks about sowing and reaping, we don't even, we don't even, know, what those, we don't even know what those words are, right? You've, you've not sowed anything in your life. You might not have even ever grown a plant. Never, never grown some herbs in the windowsill, but certainly never had to grow fields full of food that you would survive without. And so sometimes some of the examples miss us. And so 
I went to Ephesians 4, 12 through 15, because this talks about how we mature in Christ in a way that can't miss us. Because all of us have been a baby. Some of us have seen and raised a baby. But we all understand this process of growing and maturing from being a tiny little infant. And you know what I mean? Like those years of your life when it's acceptable to have a dimple on your elbows. Or perhaps two dimples that your little arm is so chubby. Apparently that fades later in life. I'm for it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 15 reads like this. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather speaking, the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is how we grow and mature as believers. We're The object of our growth is to be more and more into the image of Christ. You see that echoed again in Romans 12, 2. We mature by degrees. We would call it progressive sanctification if you want a 25-cent word. It means progressively, over time, more and more and more. One thing, building on the next. We become more and more in the image of Christ. And sometimes we do that by tripping and falling, right? Like last week, I tried to come up the stairs. I nearly tripped and fell. You may have been disappointed that I didn't but now I've learned better how to come up these stairs. The Christian life can be a lot like that. We learn like through the refiner's fire, Scripture would say. And I always picture that like, you know, you see the Halloween decorations and you have this huge black cauldron and there's always like dry ice in there so the smoke comes out. And this is how I picture the refiner's fire. It's a big pot with metal, molten metal inside and it bubbles up and impurities raised to the top. They're scraped off, maybe dried, cooled. And then re-brought to a boiling point to scrape off impurities. This is the picture that the Scriptures draw of the Christian sanctification. So then Ephesians 4.12-15 says that we become equipped for the work of ministry. This is the saints, those of us who make up the body of the church, the individual believers, you and me and the people to your right and left and front and back, are equipped for the work of ministry, and to build up the body. The work of the ministry being to build up the body, to build up the people around, so that a watching world says, what is that? What's going on in that place? Why do they love one another? Why why do they greet each other so happily? Why, Why do they treat each other so differently? Why do they treat me differently than the rest of people around? It causes people to question what it is that You treasure. So the building up continues until everyone is built up. Everyone is always going to be at varying degrees of knowledge at any given point in time. And sometimes that knowledge comes experientially. Meaning you gain new bits of knowledge through experience. Sometimes that's by failing. Sometimes that's by succeeding. Um, I've said before that Christmas morning is, is fun as a gift giver. Not because you know what's inside the package and 
Maybe you have someone horrible in your home who you don't allow to touch packages because they can just pick things up and they know what it is. Maybe they've got like these x-ray hands. That's my wife. You can't let her touch anything. She'll already know what's inside the box. But gift giving is fun because you watch the person open it and discover what's inside. And so as a believer, when we see the gifts that God has put in us, it's not that we're unsurprised when it opens. We're surprised when it comes out. I'm surprised when I react this way towards someone who wronged me. I say, wow, that's fruit of the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside me. My natural self would have been so angry or frustrated by that. But now, because the Spirit of God dwells within me, because I've been redeemed and forgiven, I reacted differently towards that. That's a gift from God that I got to see come out. And now my faith in Him becomes built up even more because I see that He's transforming me from the inside out. Sometimes by the renewing of my mind, sometimes by tempering my spirit, sometimes by failure. Sometimes I I fail and I realize that I've failed. Maybe I reacted super negatively towards someone and I shouldn't have. But then I could go to them and forgiveness. A Christian life is joy-filled. And so the building up continues until everyone is built up. We see that people will be at varying degrees at any given point in time, but they're growing up in knowledge, knowledge of the Son of God. Ephesians 12, 4, 12, and 13 says that they would grow up in the knowledge of God. And so why have knowledge of the Son of God? What does that knowledge of the Son of God do for me? Is it just book knowledge? Is it academic? Do I pack it away and not react to it? Romans 12, 2 I referenced earlier, says that our minds are being transformed by the knowledge of Christ. To think of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us, to watch him then interact with a sinful world, to watch him um, with his disciples and decide that he's going to wash their feet and serve all of them, knowing, frankly, that one of them was in process of turning him over to murderous crooks. But you still see Jesus serving. You still see Jesus being compassionate towards Judas. And so when we come to understand Jesus more, we come to understand that his motivations and his desire is to please God. That's his focus. So serving the disciples, even though one is plotting against him, doesn't change that he wants to be of service, that he wants to be a servant leader, because his desire is not to exact an outcome. He's not trying to manipulate people. He's trying to please God by the way that he lives in a fallen and broken world. And so, you know, maybe you have a conversation with someone about, you know, should I, should I apologize or should I offer forgiveness to this person or, or to that person? Or what should I do with this situation? What if, it, what if I apologize and it doesn't work? The question becomes, how would it not work? If your desire is to be pleasing and obedient towards God, then if what you did was pleasing and obedient towards God, it did work. Maybe it didn't exact some outcome, but we shouldn't be using biblical principles to manipulate people. We should be looking to be people who please God. And so growing up in the knowledge of Christ, we get to see Jesus in all kinds of different, very interesting situations. We get to see how the God-man lives in a broken world. How does Jesus, who lived in all ways, tempted and tried like me, yet without sinning, how does he deal with all of these various situations? How does he deal with having to pay taxes? I'm still trying to pull that one off for myself. We were in Ocean City, Maryland, doing a little bit of fishing a couple weeks ago. I checked every mouth of every fish. 
not enough to pay the taxes. And so if you're not a farmer, and I'm looking around, and you're not, this passage speaks to us because it talks about growing up in maturity to go from being a, a, a small child into manhood. Verse 13 says, to mature manhood. Now, I don't know how many of you in here have raised boys, but maturity to manhood takes a very long time. Um, and it's very bumpy in the middle. <laughs> Maybe you've ever heard the phrase, he's all boy. Uh, that usually comes out after someone does something so incredibly ridiculous that you can't believe a human would do that or survive it. Um, we have a little boy who would normally be sitting there-ish, a little toddler, little baby, and they were in a car accident recently. Uh, they were rear-ended. Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. But they were rear-ended, and the baby said, Wee! <laughs> oh, boy. Or I remember when I was a kid, we used to jump off the side of the house with little grocery bags as parachutes. Um, remember those things that they used to make for kids that were like these ladders? You would climb up them forever. Like they would never do it now, right? Like the government would come and shut that thing down, and, and they sh rightly should. It was horrible. Like I don't even know whose idea this was. I remember falling completely from the top of it, landing on my face, splitting my lip. I remember we used to play BB Gun Wars. You guys ever do that? Did, did anybody do that, BB Gun Wars? Any women in here do that? Per, you're a, you're a dude, man. I remember coming home and, and I had been shot right above my eye in one of these little BB gun wars. And I had my hair in front of my face and I came home. And my mom's like, move your hair. <laughs> She's like, what's that on your eye? So I told her, I said, well, we were playing BB gun wars. She's like, wait, roll that back. Well, BB gun wars, They're, we only pump them once and then we shoot each other. Oh boy. I'm fairly certain that maturity in men probably begins somewhere around 45. I think that's where it starts. Um, there may be some wives in here with men over 45 that disagree. But God made us men and women different and to complement one another, and it's awesome. We laugh about it, but it's real, and it's awesome. It's good. And so Ephesians 4.14 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So think about it like this. I said, we're not agrarian people. So those, those things miss us, right? Sowing, we're just, we pretend like we know what he's talking about. Sowing and reaping and the uh, the, the weed is white for Harvey. We just we go, okay, cool, got it. But this one we do know, right? So you think of a, of, a, of a toddler, right? Generally speaking, toddlers don't swim well, right? They sink like a rock. Even the little nose bubbles they have don't keep their heads above water. So there's all kinds of things that you have to do. It used to be that we would put like the little things on their arms, right? That's not good enough anymore, right? Just like car seats used to just be like covered in plastic, have a metal bar in front, and the kid was supposed to be safe in the car. We've improved on the water waves. So if, you, if you've seen a, a contemporary baby in the pool, it's the strangest thing, right? Because they have a special swim diaper. Like, we didn't know about this when I was a kid. You just throw a kid naked in the water and let him bounce off the bottom. 
but now you've got a special swim diaper. These are great improvements, okay? So they've got this little swimmer diaper on, all right? And then they'll have a full vest. And it's not just a vest, it's got a zipper up the front. It clips 17 times here, like race car drivers have less harnessing going on when you put them in the water. And then they'll have this special shirt because we can't let them get sunburned. So they have these long sleeve shirts and like a turtleneck that comes up to here. And they look like a ghost because their face is covered in like zinc and like 800 sunblock, which is concrete. And so you take this little toddler and you throw him in the ocean. And then you go sit in your little beach chair. You enjoy your Dr. Pepper with your arm on the cooler. How long do you think before somebody runs into the ocean and saves this little baby? Probably not very long. Even with all this safety equipment, we know that it's unsafe for this little baby to be getting knocked around in the waves. And so this is what the scripture is talking about when it's talking about maturing, having to mature. Why do we have to mature? Just so that we'll have more information? No, because we're so insanely in danger when we don't have the right knowledge of who Jesus is in the world around us. What are we in danger of? Well, verse 14 just told us. We're in danger by, you know what the number one thing that's missing, that, that's, that's not missing, that's mentioned? Human cunning. Now think about it. You've got this little toddler getting knocked around in the ocean. And, and you know how the ocean is. Everybody's like, oh, I'm going to go to the ocean. It's going to be great. And then you get like, you get rolled by a wave on top of, you know, you're, for like a week, you're finding shells in your ears, you know. You've got a toddler out there in this water getting knocked around. And what's the cause of that? Human cunning. So that what that means is, in the world around us, there are people who are cunning and who are crafty and who are working against the purposes of God in your life, whether they mean it or not. And sometimes they do mean it. And sometimes their title's pastor. Work on that. When the scriptures warns us about things, talks about people who are in the church from within your own number, and so maturity in Christ, maturity in knowing who Jesus is, maturity in knowing what Jesus has said keeps us safe in the world. And so we mature. And knowing that there are people among us who are in varying degrees of that maturity, we work towards their maturity becoming more and more because there are cunning people in the world around them and craftiness and deceitful schemes that are after them like a laser beam. Become a new believer and you'll see what I mean, likely. Right? If, you're, if, you're, if you're not a believer, if you kind of scoff at these things and you're not really worried about it, you know, why, would, why would Satan, why would the enemy, why would any scheme be against you? You're already ineffective. You become effective when you become a believer, but especially a new believer, because you won't be quiet. You won't stop running your mouth, and that's great. We just need to teach you some things pretty quick so good things come out of your mouth. Um, I remember when, when we were in New Mexico, a uh, buddy of mine pastored there. His name is Paul. <laughs> Paul was telling me a story about a guy that had become a believer, and somebody was a little concerned about it, the way that he would pray. And he's like, well, what do you mean? What's your concern? You know, the guy had been a believer for a very short period of time, kind of came out of a rough life. And he's like, well, he cusses when he prays. <laughs> Paul's like, it's, it's okay. It's all right. He's in process. Right? In process. So then the question becomes, when are we mature? Is it when we reach 40? 
45, 50, 60, 65, 80, 86? When we stop hitting from the white tees, is that when we become mature? Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 continues on in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Truth in love, Christ-like. We're to grow into Christ-likeness. That's what we're supposed to grow into. We do that through knowledge. And then knowledge works out in the world, and we become more Christ-like. When we want to be obedient towards God, and we take different kinds of actions than we would have if we were complete unbelievers, you act differently when you know who Christ is. You act differently when you know what the character of God is. And so that starts to flow out of you. You start to go with a certain kind of a joy. You start growing more and more into the very image of your Savior and Lord. So I would say Jesus is Savior and Lord. Um, if Jesus was just your Savior, he'd just put a new tire on the car. But when Jesus is your Lord, he puts a new tire on the car and then tells you which way to drive it. Savior and Lord. And so verses 12 and 13 instruct us that we grow up and we mature, not like a child. We don't stay in our childhood. We mature into something specifically that we see in the back half of verse 15. We grow into something specific, which is Jesus himself, Christ our Lord. We become able to know truth and to defend truth always having a reason for the hope and the faith that lies within us, Scripture would say we're to do. Um, so does that mean you have to know specific apologetics for every group of people who knocks on your door with a short sleeve shirt, an elder tag, and a bicycle? No, you don't have to have a specific answer for everything. And it's like the, maybe you've heard this illustration before, I find it helpful, um, like training a bank teller, right? You don't give a bank teller a stack this tall, of fake bills so that they can determine what a fake is, you give them one real one in a good light so that they can study it. And so when a fake comes around, maybe they can't tell you why it's a fake specifically, but it doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right because they've inspected it. And so the Word of God is like that. When we become grown up in the knowledge of Christ and something wrong comes across our radar, when we know Jesus' own temperament, when we've seen Jesus interact in a sinning world and something comes along in Jesus' name, but it doesn't line up with that, we're aware. That's why the Scriptures encourages us to test all things. So when you encounter someone who encourages you not to test the Word of God, not to discern the Word of God, or, or worse yet, when someone comes to you and they say, this is a true thing that you find in the Word, and you're like, uh, it's actually not in the Word. And they say, well, don't question me. I'm God's man. Don't question me. I'm God's anointed teacher. You immediately question that person. You immediately take it to the Word. That's what Paul celebrated about the Bereans. They took what he said. They compared it to the Word to see if it was so. Even Paul. Like That was a, a conversation that we had on a Saturday with, with some men here as well. Um, you know, Can you just take... A preacher, even you know he's a really good preacher, can you just take that and understand, form your understanding of Christ around what someone has said about Christ? 
And the problem is, as you step away from the real thing and you don't get to appreciate for yourself and understand for yourself its nuances and where those concepts and ideas are coming from, you put yourself in a potential for danger because you're not studying the source. You're studying a copy. And so for us as believers, we don't become saved, set the microwave to 45 seconds, and open the door at 43. We take time and we take process. And we're sanctified progressively over time in varying degrees. And at no point, because we're at one degree, then another, are we less saved. And that's incredible. Once our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, once we have seen Christ and confessed our sins, He holds us. That's what the book of John teaches. You're not holding on to me. I'm holding on to you. And all that the Father have given me are secure in my grasp. And so what we need to be cautious of is having that microwave culture impact the way that we see our own sanctification. Because we want to become a believer and then know everything. Or we want to become a believer like, like, look at the bookstores, right? They do still exist. There's a Barnes and Noble on the West Shore, and there's a BAM. Behind all the toys, there's books back there, I promise. But if you were to go and look at the bookstore, so many things. There's a guy um, who I've read a couple of his books, and now his name space, Tim Ferriss. Um, Tim Ferriss writes books like Four Hour Work Week and, and uh, Four Hour Body and all of these different kinds of things. And someone was, he's a very well, very high-selling author, say. Um, and somebody asked him, why do your books sell so well? And he says, because what I'll do is I'll take a really complicated subject and say, how can I make that incredibly easy? And it becomes bestsellers. Because we want big things without a lot of work. Right? We want to say, I'm a Christian, I love God, and, and I want to be able to live this amazingly perfect Christian life, but I really don't have time to read the scriptures, so you just give me the cliff notes. You tell me what it says. You tell me what God meant by that. And so we miss out on abiding in Christ. We miss out on spending time with God. We miss out on growing more deeply. That's why the scriptures talks about, you know, all of our works will be tried like wood, hay, and sticks. Stubble? Some of those things will be stones and rocks, things that don't burn up. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. you're not agrarian, you don't farm, maybe you understand training for something, maybe because we just watched the Olympics, and for years I said we need a normal guy in the Olympics, but what I really want is a normal guy on the football field, because armchair quarterbacking is so common. You know, you, you, you go to work on Monday morning and say, well, you should have just done this, or you should have just opened a hole here, or you should have just blocked better, I'm like, I wish you could be on the field with actual athletes and realize how inept you are 
I mean, these people, have you ever been to a, a, a football field before a game and walked around and seen these humans? No offense, Per. They're large. They're big people. But we've become so used to just watching them perform that one day a week. I forget which barber it was. It was Tiki or Ronde, um, was talking one time and somebody asked him, why'd you retire so early, man? You were in your heyday. He said, because you see me on Wednesday or you see me on Sunday. You don't see me on Thursday or Monday. You don't see what it takes to make my body do that. You don't see me in ice baths with needles hanging out of my knees, getting massages that aren't comfortable, they're therapeutic, and there's grown men crying while they get these. You don't see what it takes to make that body perform in that way. Just like the Olympics, we watch the output of insane amounts of work. Gymnasts whose hands split open. You watch some of the gymnasts fall off. I mean, these uneven bars, this thing's terrified me. All right, because I'm already very uncomfortable with heights. Um, that's why Dave came over to my house and we duct taped ladders together to work on my roof. I'm afraid of heights. It's a healthy fear, all right? How does Dave always says it's not the fall that kills you, it's a sudden stop at the bottom. So we can imagine the way that these people train. The way that high-level athletes train is completely different than what so many of us are aware of. But we appreciate watching the output, and we can pick apart what they did wrong. Ooh, that wasn't a very good landing. I'd say that's probably an 8-2. You're lucky you can walk. And you're talking about the way that this person did some kind of an insane flip through the air while they were twisting and then landed on a rubber mat? The runner, the gymnast, the football player, they train to win. High-level athletes train to win, not just survive. And so what about us as believers? With the calling that we have, what kind of an energy, what kind of an emphasis do we put on our own growth? If a high-level athlete dedicates everything to it, some of them are weird sleeping in hyperbaric chambers, shooting their bodies up with all kinds of stuff, taking blood transfusions. I mean, you think about that last bit of performance that a very high-level athlete is trying to eke out of their own body, the kinds of strange things that they do. I mean, it's odd. Well, what about us as believers? Do we run? Do we train? Do we spend time in the Word of God? Do we say, hey, if, if my... If my calling, if my aim is to become conform more to Jesus' image, what did I do last week that looked more like Jesus than the week before? Do we have goals for ourselves? Like, I'm not generally, naturally a goal-oriented person, so I have to force myself in that direction. Um, I have a buddy who is amazing at that. His name is Larry Snyder. Uh, he, he was a pastor in Hershey. Uh, now he's planting in um, South Florida. He just wrote a book about church planting. Guy is a maniacal planner. Like I would talk to him or something at the beginning of the year, you know, and I'm just kind of half cocked doing something. And he has a list of how many books he wants to read this year. And they're in a spreadsheet. And then he knows how many words he's read that year compared to last year, compared to last He's had this spreadsheet going for like more than a decade. So what if we took some, some measure of discipline and applied it to our own growth, to our own Christian life? I'm not growing. Okay, what are you reading? What specific subject are you studying? There's all kinds of things that are going on 
um, around the church that you can plug into. Uh, Roy and, and Emily, who are not here today, and that is very noticed, two demerits each, weekly have an awesome study at their house. You can plug into that. There's several people in the room that have been there and that attend. It's fantastic, and you would be welcome to go. Um, if enough people start showing up, I think John was saying he's going to start like grilling for everybody dinner while they're there. Like We were over at Roy and Emily's a couple of nights ago, and they made us steaks. It's awesome. Bless you. What is it that we're doing to grow? Are we taking positive action towards that? Um, what are we studying? And it's hard, right? Like, what are you supposed to do? Just flip the Bible open and point at it, and then wherever your finger lands, that's what you read? No. There's so many resources available to us. I imagine if you take someone like a Paul in Scripture, right, who um, Paul was a very uh, well-trained uh, Jewish scholar, grew up in, in under the tutelage of another well-trained scholar, was kind of going down that path. And then when he left from Jerusalem to um, what would now be Syria, he encountered Christ and everything changed for him. But he was on his way to go capture the Christians, to take them back in chains, chains, perhaps to be killed. He had scrolls. We have so much technology. If you have a smartphone, maybe you have a Bible app on it today. I, I heard, read recently in Afghanistan that people were, the Taliban were looking at people's phones to see if they had Bible apps on them. You have none of that. No one's bothering you. But I said earlier, sometimes in much, we're just happy with having a lot. Sometimes we're happy enough that our bank account can sustain us. Sometimes when the Lord's Prayer tells us to give God thanks for our daily bread, we think, why bother? There's plenty of it. We shouldn't be too thankful in much of what this life gives us because it's a vapor. This is the place where moth and rust destroy things. Right? Just look at any older car. Now, at this point, I don't know what happens to older cars because they're all made of plastic. I, you can't repair them. Maybe you need a blowtorch and a toy. I don't know. But you go into any junkyard, things aren't improving. They get worse with time, not better. Even cheese and wine, give it time. And so, maybe you're still in the phases of, you're that toddler, right? And you're like, listen, dude, I'm in the water. <laughs> okay, I've got my little shirt. I've got my floaty vest. More clasps on it than a NASCAR driver, but this water is overtaking me. I can't even time my breaths between the waves that are hitting me. I want to encourage you this morning that Scripture encourages, Scripture tells us that's, that's a normal place to be. If you're, if you're a child and understanding Christ, that's okay. It's not negative. It's not a pejorative thing. I'm not saying that to put anyone down. Of course, everyone's a child in the knowledge of Christ until they increase in knowledge. So how do you increase in knowledge? Through your church. I've told you one resource tonight at Roy and Emily's that's going on regularly. There's a group of men that meet on a, on a regular uh, Saturday basis. There's plenty of people around you. I've, here's, the, here's the secret about everyone in this room. They're all here to hear about the Bible. And so if you're like, I just want to talk to somebody a little more about the Bible, tap somebody on the shoulder and ask them for their phone number. Say, hey, could we 
maybe get together this week? Can I call you? Can we, can we hang out? I'm just looking to do some study. There's so many resources out there that are great. Um, if you're like, I don't really know where to read in the Bible, I get that. Use a reading plan, right? McShane, it's impossible to spell. You can't do it, but that's a great reading plan. That'll have you doing a lot of reading. There's other slower reading plans. Don't feel like you have to run so hard and so fast. And if you start slipping on your reading plan because it's making you read too quickly, slow down. It's okay. There's not a specific way that you have to do any of this. Just do it. Train like an athlete in the knowledge of Christ. And then when you can kind of take those buckles off of your little vest in the water, and you know how to stand up over the waves, then go help somebody else, maybe who's struggling. That's the call of the church. That's how we grow, is one-on-one by discipling each other. That's the plan of the church. It's very self-survivable. It's designed to grow. It's designed to function like this. Don't be shy about tapping somebody and saying, I need to talk to somebody about the Bible. There's very few people in here today who would say no to that. I see two Steelers fans. Do not talk to them. Talk to anyone else. I'm going to leave you with a few verses to read this week. Um, I want to encourage you to look at those in the context of growing. Um, They're up there. You probably can't read them, so I'll go through. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 7. Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 18. 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. Verse 18, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, and Mark chapter 4, verse 28. I know that was a lot. We'll put that up online this week. Think about those. Read, read those verses this week, all week. Spend through those, thinking about your growth, your growth as a Christian. That's what we're all called to do is is to mature, not to stay a toddler, not to stay a baby, to mature into a more fully grown person in the image of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much to be able to celebrate the baptisms today of those people who have just taken the public step of professing their faith in you symbolizing their death to sin by going under the water, but then symbolizing their resurrection in your son Christ, who death couldn't hold because it had no grip on him because the penalty of sin is death. And so then, God, you have transferred the righteousness of Christ to those of us who believe, who call on Jesus' name to be saved, has transferred to us his righteousness so that death then will have no hold on us. And so we would live time.